Welcome to the Extra Credits. I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. Today we're talking about HBO's The Last of Us Episode 7, Left Behind. Kelsey, thoughts on Joel being alive? Okay, I knew he wasn't dead. (laughs) I said that last time, but I also wasn't ruling it out because something I respect about this show is it kills everyone. Yeah. (laughs) And it's true to an apocalypse. Uh, I guess we're not supposed to say zombie with this infected situation. Mm -hmm. But after such a crucial cliffhanger, you know, halfway through the season, I was surprised to not see something in between, like to just see Joel live in a basement. We do get a shot of like a bloody trail in the show leading up to an abandoned house where... I guess that's implying that Ellie dragged him from the train tracks or wherever they were, where Joel was bleeding out to that house. Right. And that made me do something really creepy. I looked up Pedro Pascal's height and weight (laughs) (laughs) felt so invasive. Um, He's 5'10 or 5'11, depending on your source and 167 pounds. That is very specific. I don't know. Uh, Also, that was just like, I didn't even click on the articles. It was just the description. So I could be wrong, but no way is Ellie dragging him that Mm. far. But I mean, I guess fine. I'll suspend disbelief. (laughs) But I do like how we open Ellie's putting pressure on Joel's wound saying you have to help me because Joel physically does have to help her. Right. Yeah. But also he has to want to stay alive. He has to help her in that way, too. And I liked that because he keeps shouting, leave me because he doesn't want to be a burden to her. And it kind of appears like she could be leaving him, right? She puts Joel's jacket on him, which there was this unintended, cute, humorous image <laughs> of just little Joel in a blanket, you yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I know exactly. Yeah. And then Ellie runs up the stairs and takes a minute before we see her grab the doorknob to exit the basement. And I knew she wasn't leaving Joel, uh, I mean, that was pretty clear, yeah. but I do like how we don't know where Ellie's going to go from here when she is leaving the basement. And I like how we have this transition to a time jump. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what the social media reaction is to this episode to see if people thought Joel was dead or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to point out really quickly of what you just said. The thing that stands out to me is Bella Ramsey, again, is great in this performance. Yeah, When she scream cries at Joel at the top, I really bought into that. Mm-hmm. I was sold. Uh, but before we kind of get any further into what happens in the time jump, for those that don't know about episode seven, this episode left behind is based on a video game side story, which is referred to by gamers as a DLC story, which stands for downloadable content. So if you don't know, left behind was made after the original, the last of us game came out and people loved it. I just recently played through the left behind chapter a few months ago. And from what I can tell, even though it's more recent for me, the game in this episode are pretty much the same. And I think the purpose of going back in time and left behind in the game and in the show is to give you some history and background of Ellie to kind of contextualize her motivations and maybe, maybe her personality better. So Mm -hmm. you're more invested in the present day Ellie and her relationship to Joel. And then on top of that, you're introduced to a new character, Riley, whose personal arc is another layer of evidence for this story's thesis that I think we're going to get into today. Yeah. I like learning more about Ellie. Yeah. And the mall. Heck yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's go ahead and jump in episode seven. You don't fight. Your friend fights. She's not here anymore. You follow the rules, you become an officer. We're the only thing holding this all together. Riley! 
Where have you been? I will tell you everything. You have to come with me for a few hours. You trust me, right? Open your eyes. Tonight, I'm gonna show you the four wonders of the mall. If you come back, we could be running things. We're like the future. You're a firefly? Yes, Ellie, put it down. None of this shit was even about me. Get ready to run. So episode seven, Left Behind. So let's start off with the obvious younger Ellie as an outsider, getting in fights, arguing with her superiors. Mm -hmm. It is a familiar mold, and it's not surprising to see her act like this. And I still kind of like these rebellious moments (laughs) even Mm -hmm. back then. Um, I want to start off with her conversation with Lieutenant Kwong, who... I think he tells her that she has to make a choice with Vedra after she gets in trouble and she can either take orders or give orders. Mm-hmm. I thought that was effective in seeing how easy it is to manipulate the paths that kids have in life in this moment. Yeah. And I also thought it was really funny that this was the time that he was having the conversation with Ellie. You would have thought that he would have probably had this conversation before putting her in whatever the hole is, right? <laughs> like every time she got in trouble before. Yeah. But I also like. Well, first, I'm not sure if this is intended based on previous episodes, but I thought that the narrative of success or gaining significance in the world was pretty good Uh, here in the scene as far as what adults either tell children or what children absorb from observing like this competitive market. Mm -hmm. It's how children you often hear children talk about what they want to do in the future, which is kind of bleak. It's like I want to do X job because people have told me this is a worthy job. And why is it a worthy job? Because I get to be on top instead of the conversation of, I want to help people or improve something in this way. And obviously, you know, there's a lot more to that conversation in terms of the opportunity to even like choose a career or a job. But Mm -hmm. I like that this scene shows that even in a pandemic infected apocalypse, kids who are in positions of power, like the Fedra kids who were selected, are getting fed this like comparative success idea. Like if you work hard, if you follow the (laughs) rules, you'll get to tell the Bethany's of the world what to do. Yeah. I'm hoping that was self-aware writing. I think it is. Um, But you know, to add what you're saying, I don't know if I fully bought in that the Lieutenant says he cares about Ellie being an integral part of Fedra. I like just didn't believe in that writing and I think the lieutenant literally tells her that Fedra is the one holding this QZ together (laughs) and that if Fedra didn't have leaders like him or Ellie, that people would starve or murder each other. Right. I'm not sure if the showrunners believe in that or not because they've taken us on a political roller coaster this season. (laughs) Yeah. But that was interesting at the very least, like the dialogue. But I think what is more fascinating about this conversation is that the show wants us to think that Ellie is respected by these leaders and they want to prepare her to be someone who gives orders or I guess the showrunners aren't are trying to convince us that Ellie is a leader at the very least. But again, I don't think the writing is great on that front. Sure. I, I guess I didn't think about this until you just said it, but it's also possible that the elders, I'm talking like this is the village, um, <laughs> see her or Ellie as a threat, right? Yeah. If she decides to leave, because Ellie is kind of like a loose cannon. We just sure. learned that she gave Bethany, who is considerably taller than her, <laughs> right? And looks like she'd be able to win that fight. Yeah. 15 stitches. So yeah. they could also be trying to manipulate her in that way to make sure that she is ultimately working for Fedra. 
And not even because they care about her. I guess you're right. I mean, they could. Like, he seemed like he did have some sort of relationship with her. But ultimately, uh, that they understand that she just wants control, Mm -hmm. too, like, as a character. Because she is kind of out of control um, emotionally, right? And that kind of goes back to that conversation we were talking about last episode where she tells Joel after this, after all this, if we go to the fireflies, we get the cure. Mm -hmm. She wants to go to the moon. Right. right? And she wants to kind of escape, but also have some sort of control. Yeah. It's a good read, which Fedra could see, you know, uh, that she's vulnerable and be providing guidance, you know, or they could care about her and just want her to have the same philosophy as them. But Mm -hmm. either way, Fedra is offering her, power and a narrative to justify that control. And so in this like either or situation, she's being presented in this office. She doesn't really think about the people who are not in her position, right? We see later on that she very uncomplicatedly sees fireflies as the problem. Yeah. And we're going to see more of that in Riley and Ellie's conversation on the roof. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the design of Ellie's bedroom going back to set design here. I think we cut to that room after her conversation with the lieutenant. I think home decor with like the art on the walls, posters, books, and like mm-hmm. small details of someone's living space is such an underrated way to develop a character quickly. Yeah. I love these small details of Ellie's room showing the baseball, dinosaurs, lunar cycles, like the movie posters of Red Planet and Inner Space and the cassettes, like an Etta James cassette and some other things we'll see later on, like the original no pun intended yeah. Livingston book and the... <laughs> Mortal Kombat 2 poster. Yeah. So I loved all of these artifacts that make up Ellie's personality, especially the most important piece to her, which is probably the Savage Starlight comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I didn't notice this until you just said the baseball, because I noticed the baseball too, but it was on her windowsill. Was that there because she wanted to know if someone broke in, like they would... Oh, I didn't think about over? that. Yeah, you're probably but right. But I don't know if that would just automatically knock over if someone open the window yeah i don't know know. anyway um but yeah i also loved her room and the kind of characterization we get through those details and especially because we have a bed and a wall across from her empty right which we can assume that this is the friend bethany was talking about it was her roommate right who is not here anymore right and speaking of roommates this is where we meet riley who comes Mm -hmm. through the window and we quickly learn that her and ellie are best friends and that Riley has been gone for weeks and joined the Fireflies. And she has this surprise for Ellie that she has to take her to. So they sneak out in the middle of the night, and pretty immediately you sense some tension in the political banter between Ellie and Riley. And on top of that, before they even go to the mall, you pick up on the fact that Ellie and Riley aren't just platonic friends. They have romantic feelings for one another, which I think is an aspect of this episode that obviously I was expecting because I played the game, but I wish was more developed. For all the money HBO has put in this show, technically... I don't know why we can't get full 60, 70 minute episodes for important character stories like this. Yeah, agreed. And I was surprised because Ellie is kind of like our main character besides Joel, right? Yeah. So I I do love Ellie and Riley's young friendship and relationship, but I do wish we got to spend more meaningful time with them. I Mm -hmm. think at least we understand their motivations for their paths that they're deciding to take. You know, the conversation they have on the way to the mall, but... I had some like issues with that conversation because I thought it was confusing for the message. So ultimately that didn't feel really meaningful either. We'll get into that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I like seeing them catch up and their argument that you're talking about, about the fireflies in Fedra 
is probably the most interesting part of the first half of the episode. It did take me a minute to stay interested, though, because it was derailed by this cringy roof jumping sequence where they're racing each other. I felt like I was teleported to a CW show or something. (laughs) So that was a really odd moment. True. Yeah. Parts of that, I guess, did feel kind of Smallville, which we love Smallville. Okay. But just a different vibe. And also, I haven't finished Smallville, by yeah, the way. Just no spoilers, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I enjoyed the political tension between the two of them because they've kind of both justified one another's ideologies and they keep throwing these moral jabs at each other. Like Ellie calls the Fireflies anarchists and Riley calls Fedra fascist. And I think more specifically, Ellie says Fedra holds together or like, he- like I think she says Fedra holds everything together. Yeah. Like her lieutenant literally told her earlier in the episode. So she's just repeating what he said. And Riley says that the fireflies give people their freedom back, which we assume Marlene told her. Mm -hmm. And so I think they agree to disagree by thinking they each were illusioned by propaganda. But I think they leave the conversation by kind of saying Fedra starves its people and fireflies blow up random buildings. Yeah. And I'll talk about what they're actually saying like later on in the episode But I do think at least for this scene, it was interesting to see that they're children ultimately, right? Like in the story Mm -hmm. and they're kind of repeating what the adults are saying in their worlds back to each other and kind of considering like, what do I believe? What have I been told? Completely. And without rehashing what the showrunners are actually saying through this dialogue and have been about our contemporary world, I would just tell new listeners to go back and listen to our now, almost two months of Last of Us pods wild, yeah. <laughs> that give evidence to why this show can be politically and ethically interesting, but why we think it's often hollow and sometimes lacks nuance more often than not. And I think this conversation between Riley and Ellie is just another small example of this show struggling to have a clear idea that isn't morally bankrupt or too on the fence about a serious issue. Yeah. But I will say something that worked for me is that the writers bring this rooftop conversation back at the end of the episode, which is successful for both the character arcs, which I thought was refreshing. Yeah. And again, I'll talk about that. I think later when we get there to the ending, but Mm. let's get to the coolest part of this episode. Let's do it. Yeah. (laughs) I loved when we see the mall from afar, uh, you know, we, we see it's like this huge, uh, Riley calls it a bunker, right? Mm -hmm. This huge cement building. And then they drop in from the ceiling that's exposed and you kind of expect this mall to be run down swampy when they drop in. And then I love the sequence when Riley tells Ellie to just go in the door, take a right, take another right. (laughs) And the lights come on and Ellie, when her face just sees the mall, you're like, whoa, malls are crazy. Yeah. I was seeing capitalism (laughs) for the first time. (laughs) I was uh, thinking of the mall from 1978's Romero's Dawn of the Dead which you haven't watched yet, but I can't mm-hmm. wait to see that. Um, they also use creepy mannequins in that film effectively, just like this movie did for a couple seconds. <laughs> yeah, the mannequins are so freaky. The yeah. mall turns into this horror set without having to do much, honestly, because mm-hmm. we're surrounded by creepy things all the time, if you think about it. Like advertisements now in 2023, like yeah. in our actual world, not The Last of Us, when you see people who are just way too happy, like on some <laughs> level, it's unsettling. Do you yeah, know what I mean? It's, it's basically <laughs> the plot of a Smile. touch of horror. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the only thing that was weird about this mall to me is that they struggled balancing this weird 80s mall vibe that's inherent to mall, mm-hmm. mall culture 
but they also tried to kind of like balance that out with the 2003 mall culture. And to me, it was like two eighties when it wasn't supposed to be eighties. Like when Ellie is on the escalator freaking out about the technology, oh, yeah. which must've been cool. Take on me was playing in the background in a really odd sound mix. And I felt like I was in stranger things for a second, which <laughs> is not what I'm supposed to feel. <laughs> yeah. I get what you're saying about that unsuccessful 80s moment just because it did feel abrupt mm -hmm. but I did like how she was freaking out about the escalator right yeah. because I know that a lot of people have critiqued not like hardcore but just that Ellie is someone in the story who a part of her personality now is like oh a plane yeah. oh a car <laughs> but for this yeah. it felt actually deserved like did you ever have a moment where you, you remember seeing escalators and you're like, whoa, those are wild. Like, I don't think so. <laughs> no? Okay. I remember. Somebody I, probably relates to it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. My listeners out there, um, your first escalator memories, but also, did you have any escalator dreams? What? Okay. Is that a thing? I don't know. When I was young, I had this reoccurring dream. I'm going to sound just so weird, but my shoelace kept getting stuck oh my God. in the escalator. And then I woke up a terrifying dream. Okay. Now that you mentioned that my shoelace getting stuck in an escalator is something that I still worry about as like an, an adult. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. It's just deep seated in there. <laughs> um, that kind of like mall specific dream weirdly connects to a question I had for you. Okay. What would you grab from a mall oh. in a like fungi pandemic? <laughs> um, I guess a 2003 mall to be specific. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm trying to think back to 2003 was like LL Bean I in malls so. in 2003. White people um, existed. So I guess. Yeah. It must have been. I feel like I got to hit up a camping store, right? Okay. Like I don't really know what I'm grabbing, but mm -hmm. I do know that they're going to have a tent They'll probably have like a hammock right at that point. Um, so I can sleep wherever I need to. Do I know how to set it up? Sure. No. Uh, but they, I feel like they have the essentials. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about that because well, I was going to say I would get sneakers maybe, but they have sneakers at LLB. No right? way you're saying that to me right now. Did you not they remember have, when they Ellie have winter and, coats? Yeah. But Ellie and Riley are kind of making fun of people taking sneakers over soap. Um, in this, you didn't see that you, you don't gotta that have scene? shoes. I, for me, <laughs> that made sense to me. <laughs> I guess that's true. I didn't really think about my answer for this question. So I'll wait on it. Um, something I did like about the mall was just the nostalgia of how much of a carnival the mall used to be. Hmm. Like we never experienced the theme park vibe. The eighties mall seemed to have that stranger things desperately wants us to somehow get excited about because hmm. <laughs> malls are dying. But I liked seeing Ellie and Riley on the carousel as teenagers, like in love. Like yeah. that was really sweet. Yeah. And you know, when we went to malls from 2008 to 2012, I guess in high school, when people used to just walk around them, they were sort of dying out around that time, but people still hung out in food courts. Oh yeah. And there were carousels and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So that did feel 2003 ish. But then the coolest part of the episode where I did suspend disbelief about 2003 was the sick arcade <laughs> yeah. and Bella Ramsey's great performance is what had me buy into it immediately. Ellie says the arcade is like the most beautiful thing she's ever seen. And that was very relatable. Yeah. When she saw the arcade, I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> games are just fun. Just games forever too. Like <laughs> yeah. just the idea that nobody can come and stop you and you have unlimited coins. And when they started playing Mortal Kombat, Ellie hears finish him. And she's like, 
do not finish me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know. I don't play Mortal Kombat, but I died at that. That was hilarious. Yeah. I also loved when Riley was like, just press the buttons. And yeah. Ellie's like, oh my God, how did I even do that? <laughs> it's very relatable. What yeah. did you play in arcades like Chuck E. Cheese or Dave and Buster's? Because <laughs> I don't, like I said, I don't have a relationship with Mortal Kombat, but for story games, I'd like play Jurassic Park or Star Wars or maybe Resident Evil. And then with like carnival like games, I love skee ball, basketball all day long, basically the majority of the time. And then I guess for classics, because this arcade apparently had everything. I loved Galaga, Frogger, <laughs> Donkey Kong, all that stuff. So those are go-tos for me. But I, I spent a lot of time in arcades in summers. Like, did you like those? Yeah, I guess to take it all the way back <laughs> to Chuck E. Cheese, which you said, <laughs> uh, the arcade for children. When I, the only memory I have really from Chuck E. Cheese, besides like the pizza, you know, the big mascot things. Chucky? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and his friends? Uh, yes. And picking sick prizes was the spider stomper. Okay. That thing. It was awesome. I anyway. Didn't like, I didn't like that thing. Oh, I thought it was great. I don't like spiders. For arcades, uh, I guess when maybe I'm in my like tween teen age years, but even if I went to an arcade now, like very into skee-ball, mm-hmm. um, if they had it, basketball, driving games. I liked the the team sports of the arcade um, and also having a sibling. I was like very competitive with that. And the shooting games, though, they, they always looked cool, but mm-hmm. they were never open. You know, people used to like that is true. really take those. But I also this isn't totally arcade um, I, like they're everywhere. Kind of the claw game. OK, um, I remember being good at that. And when I say that I won twice and I think like that pride <laughs> is just like still living within me. Yeah. But I, I did love seeing Ellie and Riley play games together because it really hits the nostalgia of at least for me playing video games with friends. I also got those memories from losing pretty easily in arcade <laughs> games too to friends. Uh, and when we see Ellie getting destroyed by Riley in Mortal Kombat, I related to that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as these two play on, we get some great camera work kind of pushing out of the arcade to mm-hmm. essentially an American doll store, which yeah. is probably the scariest store at I night in a mall. Same- thing okay then another cue for you what do you think this is just becoming like a mall questionnaire (laughs) it's fun haven't been to a mall in years uh what do you think the scariest store is in a dark mall outside of the american girl store which is objectively frightening so you're saying if we were in this situation what would be the scariest store to walk into yeah Ah, in the dark i don't know i guess like hot topic is already dark you know yeah um but they have like some sick uh movie shirts Okay, I, so. I, that's a great answer. I <laughs> thought about it. Yeah, ever? I also thought about yeah. Spencer's. That is scary. I think I'd choose Build-A-Bear. I, I was thinking that. I was just thinking yeah. that, but I feel like... Something the, about talking bears. Yeah, the voice box. That's yeah. the only thing. But I feel like it's not actually that scary because the, the bears and the hearts. These are like free ideas for Toy Story 5. <laughs> we'll yeah. keep these to ourselves. Uh, okay, so then we cut to a food court after we see this random infected in the American Girl store. And we see that Riley has been sleeping in Macho Nacho for Mm -hmm. a while. And Riley gives a gift to Ellie. It's the volume two pun book. She's been reading to Joel the whole season. (laughs) Yeah. um, This pun thing keeps coming back to bite me. Okay. I have to keep updating my pun take, which is something I never expected. Um, (laughs) I wasn't a fan of the pun book Okay, for new listeners. When Ellie was reading the puns to Joel, because I just didn't think that Joel would laugh at that joke. It mm-hmm. wasn't believable to me, but now it's become a whole part of the story. I thought, 
you know, it was cute when Sam was laughing with Ellie about the puns in Kansas City in that boardroom. Yeah. And now we see that the pun book is deeply connected to the only person that Ellie loved in this world. Yeah. And I stand by what I first said, okay, because <laughs> Joel just wouldn't laugh. All right. But the pun book obviously means something. And I respect it. Okay. So much so that I looked up the pun that Ellie, um, or it wasn't Ellie that Riley didn't finish because okay. Ellie found the bombs. And do you, do you want to, uh, I don't even remember guess the, the pun. answer. So she said, uh, what do you call a detective? That's an alligator. I don't, I don't know. An investigator. Okay. Wait. Okay. Oh my God. That works because she spotted the bombs, right? Like Ellie spotted the bomb, so she oh, kind of investigated the room. Uh, okay. Nice. See, this is why I don't like the puns. No, yeah. I don't <laughs> okay. even like hearing myself talk right now. Sorry, listeners. Okay. Investigator. Uh, <laughs> uh, got um, it. Okay. So Ellie finds these bombs. Let's go from there. Okay. And then uh, Riley explains that she was tasked to watch the weapons, and she says that Marlene is sending her to the Atlanta QZ, which honestly sounds way better than Boston, so I would not be sad about this, but... Ellie obviously reacts poorly and she storms off and mm. she quickly feels bad about leaving, you know, Riley. And so she goes back to find her and she finds Riley in a pop-up Halloween store of mm -hmm. all places, which is creepy as hell. Yeah. But apparently this Halloween store was supposed to be Riley's final surprise for Ellie. Yeah. And I love this because we know Ellie from the season so far, right? We know that she puts up a tough exterior mm -hmm. because she doesn't have a lot of people and doesn't want to get hurt. But Ultimately, she wants connection and she already has a connection with Riley, right? She's not going to leave without actually saying goodbye before Riley goes to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So she storms back, her fists clenched. Yeah, like um, Arthur. <laughs> yeah. And and here's that screaming where she, she runs. And I also loved the pop-up Halloween shop because... Yeah. When we open the season, when we're in Texas, it's September. Okay, is it? 2003, yeah. right? So this is a pop-up Halloween shop that just never popped down. Okay. And <laughs> All right. These, the pun book, now this. Is what is happening to you? I I'm miss just, old Kelsey. No, it's not um, a pun, but still. But, all right. But anyway, she's just tier. sitting there and she's like, surprise, Halloween. Um, so let's talk about this. First off, is it weird that Ellie likes Halloween? Like when she's living in a literal world with monsters. <laughs> I guess so. And then also, does Halloween exist in a dystopian society? Like, how do mm. they know to wear masks like yeah, that? Are they celebrating anything? Yeah, that makes me think, like, if our country lost 90% of its population, would we still celebrate Halloween? I don't think so. Um. Well, I don't know if Ellie likes Halloween because I don't know if they celebrate it, but I think okay. that she likes wolves and fantasy stories, like sure. her comics. So. Yeah. Halloween fits that box and they they probably like heard about it right in the QZ mm -hmm. from, from their school. And to answer your question though, about like, would Halloween live on? Yes. I think Halloween okay. will live forever. Got it. Okay. So let's talk about their conversation in the Halloween shop. So we see Ellie and Riley make up and apologize. And mm -hmm. we start getting a glimpse at the truth of why Riley joined the fireflies. Cause Ellie, since the top of this episode, has been just like asking Riley over and over again, like, why did she join the Fireflies? And Riley explains that she joined this group because she wanted to feel needed. And she says the Fireflies chose her and that made her feel like she matters. Mm -hmm. And she says Ellie doesn't understand that because she was never wanted growing up because Ellie didn't grow up with a family. 
Whereas Riley did. So when she lost her family, it was a big like hole and gap in her life. Mm -hmm. And I got a big hairy Ron vibe from <laughs> Deathly Hollows part one where Ron is like, you don't know how it feels. Your parents are dead. <laughs> well, he's wearing the and Harry like went over to point. beat that ass. And then, well, I guess like the Horcrux <laughs> is like a big deal at the time. But nobody talks about Lily and James Potter like that. That's all I'm saying, Ron. <laughs> Anyways, this conversation in the Halloween store is really the central theme of episode seven mm -hmm. because the episode keeps time jumping to present day where Joel wants Ellie to survive and she chooses not to leave him. And we finally see that Ellie and Joel are more than this contractual relationship and they actually have a connection. Like they're actually a family. Yeah. So this Riley arc of joining the fireflies, I think is supposed to help us understand that Ellie and Joel need each other more than any commune or ideological group because like they are each other's fireflies. They don't need anything else. Sure. So I guess like in that way, Riley unpacking why she joined the Fireflies and connecting that to why Ellie and Joel need each other. And while they'll isolate themselves along the way from others is a way for the showrunners to explore their own opinions on ideologies to the audience. And I guess that's what they've been doing all season long. So I think the message here is that people identify by ideologies or join dominant groups to find community purpose and meaning, I guess, which, okay, sure. I don't want to dive too deep into that right now, but that does seem to be the message of the episode. Yeah. I thought the same thing when we saw her say that, like, I was like, okay, that's what they were getting out when they were talking about their conversation on the roof of the mm -hmm. groups they're joining. When they're talking about the jobs they received on the carousel. It's something I want to talk about later on in this episode about what didn't work for me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We'll definitely do that. So then we cut to Riley getting Ellie up to dance on top of the glass, which I want to say you noted was very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I was just waiting for them to fall through. Yeah. Yeah. But then we get this very sweet moment where they kiss and mm -hmm. Ellie asks Riley to stay. Yeah. And we get some like Etta James music playing, which mm -hmm. is great. And then we get the kind of, I guess it's like this breakthrough of this friendship. They're really being honest with one another. They're authentic. And now they're finally being romantic with one another. And Riley chooses to chooses to stay with Ellie instead of continuing with the fireflies, mm -hmm. which I think is more evidence again to the story's like major isolationist themes yeah. with choosing family or like this kind of pairing over a community or the collective. Mm -hmm. And then I think the expected happens, which is that both Riley and Ellie get bitten, which I think is like highly anticlimactic. Like we kind of know that will happen. Like Ellie told Tess in episode two that she got bit in a mall so now after seeing this episode, I kind of wish they cut that test conversation out so we could kind of have more stakes in this episode or at least so it could have more stakes for people like you who had never played the game before. Yeah, well, I mean, first when we were in the mall, I was on edge because okay. I knew the ending. Like I knew Ellie said she got bit in a mall from her conversation with Tess. Mm -hmm. And then I obviously assumed from her telling Joel that she's lost everyone she's cared about that that person was Riley and that okay. Riley was going to die. So when we first enter the mall, I'm on high alert. Yeah. Like I actually am feeling the tension when the carousel comes to that screeching halt, we get that sound. Mm -hmm. I was like, here we go. An infected stopped this thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you're right. in that as it slows down throughout the episode, I did know what to expect. And so I felt for the characters and Ellie, but because their characters dialogue, I think felt so heavily written mm -hmm. in the slow moments, the tension did kind of fall off for me 
towards the end of the episode. It doesn't, didn't mean that I didn't care about the relationship or mm-hmm. care about the characters, but there were those moments I think that we were talking about earlier where it felt more like the OC at times with the <laughs> cliched, like teenager love lingering eye contact moments. Yes. Yeah. And I think that was because we don't know Riley, right? Like as a character. And I would have rather, instead of those more cliched moments of teenage romance, Mm -hmm. gotten kind of backstory from Riley or like a joke that she said or something that connects us to her character. And then the show could have stuck with the, I think the more unique moments that show their specific relationship of like the magic of experiencing a carousel together or Ellie and Riley looking at each other after they are playing Mortal Kombat um, and the moment with the masks. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I, I think I'm going to get to this in some of my extra credits. So I'll probably want to move on right now to okay. the end of the episode. So at the end of this episode, we cut back to present day Ellie. Mm-hmm. She is searching for medical supplies for Joel. She's trying to save him. My guy is still dying. Yeah. She is stitching him up, doing what she can to save uh, the person who gives her meaning now, image. which is ultimately nice that like Joel is playing this kind of like close figure kind of like how Riley was this like family like figure but again I wish this episode was longer because I didn't get fully connected to one emotional beat long enough kind of like what you're saying to be that invested in any one specific story or arc I thought they were really going to sell the idea of Joel potentially dying this episode or at least giving us some kind of like idea of where he's going to be next episode instead they go a different direction which I think the subversive structure of the season screenwriting is great for those reasons. But this time it just didn't fully work for me because it wasn't fully developed. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's just talk about that. Like what about the writing didn't fully work for you? Because I think that's one of the strengths of the show is really getting us connected to characters and then we see them die. And I feel yeah. like this was an interesting episode where I really cared about this relationship for Ellie, for her backstory. And I wanted to care about Riley too, but I feel like I just didn't get to know enough about her. Yeah. It was a little bit of the test treatment, which was yeah, the frustration yeah. with the test character. I think, well, first I mean, off, I cared, I cared about Tess, but I think it was because I was immediately trying to draw these connections between what does Tess mean to Joel? Cause I'm introduced to Joel as our main character. Mm-hmm. He just lost his daughter. Right. And so when Tess at the end says like, I didn't ask you to, to love me basically. Mm -hmm. Right. That was the moment where I was like, Oh, okay. Now I'm thinking about Tess's life where uh, they said they were going to actually put in a clip of her backstory. She had to, I guess, kill her husband, but she couldn't kill her child when they got infected. And he is now uh, living in a basement and possibly one of the clickers. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought that was really interesting and I felt similar where I, I really did like Tess, but I didn't care about her. Like I wanted to because Tess's character was ultimately like a vehicle to care about Joel, mm-hmm. just how it feels like Riley is sort of written in the same way for Ellie, where I want more though, for, uh, I guess to care about these, these side characters that we only get for one episode. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. So two things about the writing. First, just to reiterate, I'm assuming it sucks for a lot of non-gamers that they are kind of immediately expecting the ending of this episode. I'm sure most people knew Ellie was going to get bit and that Riley would die. So I don't think the writing was fully there for me uh, because ultimately we just don't know Riley well enough to be fully invested, like what you were saying, the way they're kind of using her in this test arc. And to be clear, I think it's difficult to kind of like compare 
Tess and Riley to like characters like Frank and Bill. So I'm not comparing them to those characters because those two got an hour of development. Right. Whereas we only get some time with Riley and Tess. But like, for example, Sam and Henry, we were connected to them pretty quickly. We got to know what their driving motivations were. With Riley, we find out that she does have a motivation. She essentially wants unconditional love. But unlike Henry and Sam, I don't think her motivation was convincing because the writing didn't have the nuance to satisfy that complicated need about wanting unconditional love. And I think we could have had some simple like five minute scene where we meet Riley's family. And I think she could have been the character we followed from the start of the episode. Like we've had so many interesting cold opens oh, yeah. in The Last of Us. That'd it would be have great. been a really easy fix instead of like Ellie forgetting that Riley's parents are dead and that she's seen them dead, which was odd. It would have been. Wait, more- she didn't say she's seen them dead, right? Yeah, she said those are the first dead bodies she had seen. Oh, yeah, I missed that. And so that was an important character trait that like would have been more powerful as an opening scene. But anyways, the last thing I'll say is that every episode of this season has been, you know, to end on a good note here, at minimum, good television. Yeah, this like is a prestige television drama in a dystopian world, and you know we should give it credit because if this show wanted to be more formulaic it could honestly be basic mm-hmm. and still be good yeah it'd be good and popular right but it it doesn't take the easy route instead we have these episodes full of ideas and messages that i think are engaging enough for us to have hour long episodes about <laughs> yeah. like kind of what worked and what didn't work for us and i think episode 7 has an idea that adds to the thesis of the show about family over community. So I'd say my only issue with this episode and why it's probably the most unsuccessful episode this season is that it's ultimately anticlimactic and we already know what's going to happen once we're introduced to Riley. And because of that, I didn't feel most of the emotional weight that's really due to the writing. And I know the beats where I'm like supposed to tear up and buy in, you can kind of see them pretty easily, but it, it just wasn't a fully developed episode. And, you know, not even Riley and her family, like just the conversation between Riley and Ellie's like political ethical disagreements about the fireflies and Fedra. Mm -hmm. Like we're supposed to buy in that both of these characters wanted to be needed and loved. And that's why they are willing to trade in certain freedoms or morals to join these two groups. And putting aside that, I think the showrunners are making another complicated comment on our contemporary world. Like in order for me to even care about these conversations and the stakes of them between Riley and Ellie, I'm missing so much context about like Ellie's childhood without a family and Riley who lost her family at a young age. So when this episode ends, I'm kind of left surprised that every episode we've watched one through six has been executed so flawlessly, but this one felt so underwhelming. Yeah. And and I want to talk about the conversation for a second. I guess this is where I'll have my conversation about what didn't work for me. When Ellie and Riley were sitting on the floor of the Halloween pop-up shop, Mm -hmm. Ellie says, you're leaving me to join a cause that you don't understand. And Riley says, you don't know what it's like to have a family and to belong. Right. And I, I want that again. And the fireflies might not be what I think they are, but they chose me. I matter to them. Mm -hmm. And that writing implies that we only join groups in this case, political ideologies to feel connection and community, which on some level, sure, you know, obviously, but like the pop psychology kind of (laughs) continues in this show. And we get this sort of flawed thesis that's presented in this moment that the reason we join political groups supersedes if the group we decide to join has an ethical mission. Right. Yeah. And there's no clear message and it ultimately becomes uninteresting. Right. Because it's, 
just created on a false premise to begin with of this picking sides narrative. And it feels so connected to when people are making small talk and someone will say, you know, the two party system's a mess and just like move (laughs) on. And so, you know, the Republicans are bad, but so are the Democrats. Yeah. And it, it just feels like so surface level. So then on top of that, it's actually just confusing, like what the showrunners are trying to say. Mm. So the provoking that they're doing through these questions falls flat. Right. Like at one moment we have Ellie saying on the carousel, why don't you stay? We can change things from the inside. And we find out that Riley then is assigned to sewage duty, which would have been interesting if we didn't have Ellie later on say to Riley, you don't even understand what you're joining in the fireflies. And then to have Riley follow that up by saying maybe she's right and she just wants community. So that as well as the rooftop conversation where they are conflating Fedora starving its own people to the Fedora bombing. I think they said they, they bombed the food storage center. Mm -hmm. It's just honestly like over and over again, saying this message of it's not that simple without context and throwing these questions that never really answered. And I think you said it a couple of episodes ago and I, I don't want to be too harsh, but it's just not as nuanced as it's pretending to be. So mm-hmm. I like the show. It's a good television show, yeah. you know, and so far the show has representation beyond the white suburban cowboy that we usually get in these stories. Totally. But I just think as far as our, our mission of the show to give more credit, it doesn't get more credit for the political arguments it's trying to make. Agreed. I think sometimes the ideas in the show feel like someone read a few chapters of a political science textbook to provoke people with some kind of social contradiction they're curious about, but then they like never fully develop their own ideas on that contradiction. (laughs) So it's like half smart always. And I'm, you know, I'm interested to see how you feel in a few weeks when part one is all over, because there is like a, a major conversation that I've been hinting at all season long that we're going to get to in in only two weeks now. Yeah. And I have no idea where the show is going, but you're right. Like these moments do feel like someone has read a a chapter Mm -hmm. that has provoked them. And they're like, I want to talk to someone about these ideas. Yeah. We all have contrarian buttons. And I think the showrunners know how to push on those really well, obviously. Okay. Let's get to our extra credits. Uh, I think I'm starting first this week. So I think what deserves more recognition in episode seven is the quiet moment on the carousel between Riley and Ellie. I think Bella Ramsey and Storm Reed, Storm Reed who plays Riley, who we've not shouted out. She's great. I think Kels, mm-hmm. you know her best from The Invisible Man, I believe. She's in there. She's a great scream when like her dad is being, actually, I don't want to spoil that. Uh, but people watch The Invisible Man. Great movie. Um, but I thought their quiet moment of awkwardly looking at one another when the other looked away was a great example of the childhood experiences present day Ellie is missing out on that will eventually catch up with her and make her a pretty cynical person. And, you know, we can already see she is cynical. She's like stealing bunnies from nice people's homes and she's being a little too knife happy. That's making us uncomfortable. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so she's got like this wild side. And I think seeing her just having this moment as a teenager with her best friend and probably Mm -hmm. her first love Mm -hmm. is an important reminder of all the moments and experiences she's lost in her life. And ultimately it was just really well directed. And I've been saying this whole pod that this episode was underwritten and you know, this carousel moment doesn't have much dialogue and that might be why it's so good, I think. And I thought it was actually fitting to kind of have these silent moments. Yeah. I liked those quiet moments where we're spending time with Elliot and Riley like they probably would in their day to day. And my extra credit is connected. 
Mine is when Ellie and Riley find out that they were bit. So Ellie, right. She took out the infected and she is celebrating Mm -hmm. and she looks up to Riley and she's confused. And Riley has this defeated face looking at Ellie's arm. Yeah. And this is my extra credit moment because when Ellie screams like, no, no, no. And is trying to rub the bite off of her arm to get rid of it. It was so emotional. And Riley has her own quiet moving performance of devastation, just slowly holding her hand up to show Ellie that she is now infected too. Mm -hmm. And this was moments from when they just had their first kiss, when they were completely vulnerable with each other and they had hope. They felt like they had a future kind of going back to what Tess and Joel were talking about before Yeah. to now finding out that their lives are over. Yeah. I and also, so I, I just love the performance and it was really devastating. And it did, even though we talked about how like the writing wasn't fully there, it did mm-hmm. feel deserved to me uh, because I care a lot about Ellie's character and I, I cared about like their relationship and I, they've obviously had like a friendship throughout this pandemic. They've spent the most time with each other. Right. I think it also helps contextualize why Ellie like present day Ellie has been a little bit more timid and mm-hmm. I think cautious, even though she has like a loud mouth and is like fine telling Joel to F off. Mm-hmm. Like she is a little bit more scared. Whereas this kind of past Ellie and this time jump, she seems a little bit more confident. Like when she gets in that fight, she kills this part, like this infected, um, and something I noticed, actually, I paused the screen on our re- rewatch recently, uh, was when she was reading her graphic novel, her comic book or whatever, the character she's like influenced by is like the the main superhero, the man. And he's like kind of leading this side character into this dungeon or something. And they go through this ambush. But he like was just so surprised that he got ambushed. Like he couldn't believe that he didn't see that coming. And now I'm thinking and trying to understand Ellie's character. She's kind of molded herself off of this superhero comic that she's been reading all of her whole childhood and this is a moment where she thought she was kind of like safe where she kills the infected and seeing herself kind of like a bit and trying to rub it off it was making me think that maybe you know she's a kid and she maybe just thought she was like you know not um, she was invincible yeah she was similar to when she kind of cuts her palm open right to rub the blood on on sam like she doesn't know if it'll actually work and maybe she is more she doesn't actually totally believe in that moment, but Mm -hmm. does have a little bit of hope. Uh, That's interesting. I did. Well, she ends up actually being invincible. So that's kind of, so when I rewatched it, I wanted to see what was on the comic, but I didn't pause it. So I'm glad you paused it. Cause I was like, I wonder what (laughs) that was. I wonder if you picked it up. Um, but okay. Should we get to our extra, extra credits? Yeah. Okay. So two episodes left, which is wild. It feels like we have a lot more to go considering what, I mean, you don't know, but the video game, there's a lot of time left. Uh, so predictions, what do you got? Is Joel alive? <laughs> um, yes, I okay. think that he is alive. Do I think his wounds going to be infected? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think the show will do it because it will create complications, but like, how is that thing not getting infected? <laughs> okay. So your immediate prediction going to the next episode is that we're just going to see a, a Joel who's bedridden, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I feel like they'll be with other people. Okay. Solid guess. Uh, my only question is like, are they going to make it to Salt Lake city before the end of the season? Okay. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, all right. My extra, extra credits. I don't know if you have any, but well, this, this first one isn't really an extra, extra credit. It's just a, a comment about how I would not do well in an apocalypse because seeing Joel's cut get sewed up by Ellie just made my stomach turn every time I watched it. 
mm-hmm. was rough. I'm confused why they didn't have like a sewing kit on them. That seems like a thing like a first aid you, essential. Like everybody would have on them 20 <laughs> Maybe, years yeah. into this apocalyptic yeah. event. Um, and also she just found it like within the silverware. Sure. Whatever. We'll go with it. But I mean, I my, related to her going through those cabinets. I'm like in the video game, you're just like oh, pressing square a lot. Open up in those <laughs> cabinets. Square, square. Every, every time you're missing it, you're like, okay, nothing's in this one. Nothing's in this one. <laughs> uh, how many cabinets did you have to go through? There's a lot. There's oh, a wow. lot. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm ser- I feel like I'm serious. There's like <laughs> 10 to 12 but drawers. I turned that house upside down. Yeah. Um, but my extra, extra credit is just one thing today. I really liked when Ellie and Joel see the dead body on their way to the mall. Okay. Just the idea that I, this is, I was feeling danger for them. I was like, okay, this is the first time they come into a threat an, mm-hmm. an infected person, but instead they're kind of looking at the situation. I think they end up taking the guy's alcohol. They find out that he OD'd, but when he falls through the floor, they aren't in shock. They aren't afraid. Mm-hmm. They laugh. And I was like, yeah. okay, they're so desensitized to death. And I thought it was a good moment to, to show us that. Which was kind of confusing too, because they're growing up in a like compound. Like I'm, I'm assuming they've seen death from like the hangings and stuff. Yeah. I guess that's must've been where they've seen it. Cause they haven't been out right from what we know. Yeah. I mean, I think they have referenced the, the Fedra like killings. Okay. So, so maybe I'm, assuming they, I'm assuming they have seen death. Okay. Though. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. See, that's what I'm saying. The cold opens would have been really nice with the mm-hmm. family or the upbringing. Maybe we'll get some of that stuff in the next two episodes, but okay. Any others? No. And I think even though we had our issues with this episode, I really did like getting context for Ellie and I liked mm-hmm. meeting Riley like as a character. Well, I'll say this about the next two episodes. You'll have no time to breathe. Okay. Um, they're like 40 <laughs> to 45 minutes each. Uh, that means that these are going to be like jam packed with a lot of stuff because a, a lot, lot of happens. Stuff. There's a lot of stuff <laughs> that happens in these last two episodes. Next episode is wild and surreal. The final episode is going to be something people are going to talk about for the next few weeks. So this has been the extra credits of The Last of Us, Episode 7, Left Behind. I have no idea what what could happen. <laughs> You're just like, I have no idea. Okay, bye. Peace. People say the